Nehemiah chapter number 6. Um, we'll kind of review here uh, leading up to chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 should not take us uh, too terribly long to cover uh, simply for the fact that it's a long list of names. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, Ron, you probably can answer this question, or Kathy, did, did the house to house for this month come in yet? Okay, it should be here any any day for the month of February. Uh, we or no January? Have you gotten Januarys? We have gotten. It was was it on the long boring list of names? Was that the name of the? No, actually, not that. Okay, it should be here any day um, because I got an email for Riverbend uh, with uh, the electronic copy of it, and the topic of that series of articles is that long, boring list of names in Matthew chapter 1. Well, if you're here on Wednesday nights, you know that we're covering uh, the book of Matthew, so you might want to read that as supplementary supplementary material uh, because, well, to be honest with you, a lot of the, I get a lot of notes from different preachers and study material and stuff, and one of them is actually Alan Webster's Matthew notes that he's using at the Memphis School of Preaching, so uh, the other day when I was looking at his notes, he's very well organized, by the way, but he had Matthew chapter 1, long list of boring names, and then I get the house to house, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder why he came up with that one, just because he got done teaching Matthew. But anyway, so um, we'll, we'll be looking at that um, maybe next, or uh, this coming Wednesday, if not the next Wednesday for sure. We still got a little bit to do uh, as our overview uh, that we weren't able to finish um, on Wednesday, so... We'll be looking at that. But in, Matthew, in Nehemiah chapter 7, um, if you just look, there's a long list of names. So we'll, we'll finish up chapter 6, uh, look at chapter 7 very quickly. There, there's, like I said, not much there. There's some points, though, that we can apply. And then start chapter 8. And in my opinion, and this is just an opinion, chapter 8 is my favorite chapter out of all of the book of Nehemiah because it shows a respect and a reverence and a and a reassurance and re-guidance towards the book of the Word of God, okay? And that's really what chapter 8 is all about. Our word in chapter 8 is going to be education. And I love chapter 8 because of the importance of having a biblical education. So hopefully we'll get that far today. If not, we'll just pick up next week. So um, chapter 6, our word that we looked at was examination. And we talked about how that basically there was uh, the, the enemy that I heard that they were finishing the wall, that they were about done with the whole project. And because of that, they were trying to get them to stop. And they tried three different tactics that we were looking at last week. Number one, they tried invitation, which is the buddy approach, which is the idea that you have have this group of people that, that says, hey, uh, we, we need you to meet us here in this land, and we need to talk and discuss these things. And what did they say? No, they're, they're seeking to do us harm. They're trying to, to draw us away from this project. You know, they're trying to get us to do these different things and not being able to finish the wall. So y'all go away. Okay. So they tried that buddy project. Uh, that was basically chapter six, verses one um, through down to about verse number four or five. Looking at the buddy approach of, hey, this is we're going to be friends. We're going to do this together. But really, they were doing. They were trying to just get them to stop the work, get them uh, off task. Uh, sidetracked, and but Nehemiah saw through their plans, and they did not do that. Uh, we looked at intimidation was the second tactic in which they used, well, which is the blackmail approach. And you see in verse number uh, five there, 
of chapter number six, it says, Then Samballot sent his servants to me before him for the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Notice, and I, I mentioned this very quickly last week, that the devil and his tactics is not just going to be a one-time approach, and if you say no, he's never going to come back. Think about what he did with Jesus. How many times did he tempt Jesus? We, we know that, that three are recorded, right? We know... Yeah, so so we see that that there's three recorded in the book of Matthew, but in the book of Luke, do you know what you know what it says at the end of that text? It says that he looked for more and a more opportune season. Do you, so do you think the devil gave up just after those three attempts? No, I, th- I think the devil tempted Jesus even more. That's just that you know based on that text of hey he's looking for a more opportune season or more more opportune time. I mean hey he's going to try to come back. And that's what we see here. Uh, fifth time, here in, in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 5, they sent his servants to me before a fifth time. The devil's never going to stop. The devil, our enemies, our, our, our um, adversaries, whatever you want to call the devil, and those in which the devil uses to uh, distract us, is always looking for a time, for a way to get us doing. He's never going to stop. So we see here a fifth time. And then you look at verse 6, and it was written... It is reported among the nations in Geshem saying that you you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to the rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king and that you have appointed a prophet, prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. So now they're trying to blackmail. Now, what were they accusing Nehemiah of? Trying to gain power and... And prosperity, he says, hey, you're trying to be their king. You're, you're doing all these things so you can be their, their leader. And so he's trying to blackmail approach. He's trying, he's trying to say, hey, you, you need to, you're, you're doing all these things for the wrong reason. And then, um, this is one I think we, we might have covered last week. I can't remember if we covered it thoroughly, but the third way, uh, that, that they tried it was infiltration. Infiltration. And that means, you know, hey, we're trying to infiltrate, go together, go in together uh, in this in this plan. And that began in down in about verse 9, uh, 15. All right, so let's pick up there. So so the wall was finished on the 50, uh, 25th day of Elud in 52 days, okay? And, and that's an important verse in Nehemiah. That shows the conclusion of the wall. Now, I've said this many times, but the reason I say it many times is because it's something to compare. How long did it take them in the book of Ezra to complete the temple? A long, long time. 20 plus years. Okay? They took a long break. They got off track. All these different things. How long did it take in Nehemiah? 52 days. Okay? And that can be found right here in this verse in in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse uh, 15. That in 52 days the walls were complete. So this shows the difference between letting your devil get you sidetracked, right? Ezra chapter 4, what happens? The, the, the uh, people come, they get them, the adversaries come, get them sidetracked, they stop. Here the adversaries come and what do they do? They keep on building. They have a plan of action to continue on through that. And because of that, they were able to finish in 52 days. Now look at verse 16. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, what was it that they heard? That the walls were completed in 52 days. And all the nations around us saw these things. So people were coming, right, to see the evidence of these things. They heard it. 
You ever heard something? You're like, no, no, no. I just got to go see this for myself. That's one of these instances, right? They had heard of it. And then what did people want to do? They wanted to come see the evidence. They wanted to see that they were able to complete these walls in this short amount of time. So when they heard of these things, they went and the nations around saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, and they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent me letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For it, many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of uh, whatever that long name is, the son of Ari, the son of Joachim, and married daughters uh, of, of the different people, and they poured good deeds before me, and the reports of the words Tobiah sent letters to me, frightening me. So they tried the backdoor approach. They tried to come in uh, they, through letters. They had tried to come in through um, different ways to help God, uh, to help destroy these people. Okay, so even though the walls are completed, do you think the enemy is going to stop? No. Okay, and that's where we get in chapter 7. So here, they're getting very close to the end of the, of the building. They're still trying to get them to off track of stopping, stopping the, the building, stopping the construction. Now that the construction is pretty much done, the only thing that they have left is the gates, the, the gates to hang on the, on the doors, basically. Um, they're still not going to stop. Okay, so now we come to chapter 7. Okay, now about verses 1 through down to about verse... Seven or eight is really what we're going to focus in on, and this is separation. Okay, our, our word for chapter seven is separation. Now, what does it mean as far as separation? Many times I tell my students at school, okay, if they're hanging out with the wrong crowd, right? You know, there's this group of students, and there's a there's a decent kid, you know, one that's not really a troublemaker, but can be easily influenced, easily swayed. You know what I tell them? You need to separate yourself from them. And what am I trying to do? I'm trying to protect that, that child from being in danger, right? Um, I, I'll just give you this example. One of my students the other day uh, is trying to get one of her friends to come to school, to do her work, to pass her classes. And I said, look, I said, I'm glad you're trying to be a good example. You're trying to help her out. But I said, don't let her pull you down. Okay, sometimes it's just best to separate. You know what she told me the other day? I'm not even talking to her anymore. It's just best we don't even talk because she just makes me mad. So there you go. Separate yourself. Get away from those things. Now, when we use the word separate in a biblical sense, okay, what word comes to mind? With, okay, that, not in that sense. Is what, that, that is a, a good way of looking at it. But I'm thinking of the church. Okay, the church. What what is the word ecclesia, the church, mean in the original language? Called the called out ones, right? And what does that mean? Separate, Separate from the world, right? It, it, the the word ecclesia means the called out ones. Uh, if if I said the word saints, okay, uh, the word saint comes from the same same root, same word as holy, right? Holy and, and saint kind of look the same in the original Greek language. What does that mean? Separate from who? Sinners, right? To the idea of being holy, if you are living a holy lifestyle, means what? One that are separate from sinners. Think about the life of Jesus. What made him so special? He lived a life that was separate from who? Sinners. And so what they're doing here in Nehemiah chapter 7 
is that idea of separation. The idea of separating themselves from those, those pagan nations, from the, from the nations around them that are trying to destroy them and to, to, uh, tarnish them. And so they're trying to do that in such a way that they can do this. So look at their strategic way. Look at verse number one and verse number two. Right, then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors. Okay, so now, so remember, in chapter six, the only thing that was not done was the hanging of the doors. Okay, so here when we get to chapter seven, verse one, that the doors were, that the, the whole wall was built, the doors were hung, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave charge of Jerusalem to my brother Haniah and, and the other one, uh, Haniah, the leader of the, the citadel, for he was faithful man and feared God more than many. Okay? So what was the first thing they did here as far as helping separate themselves from the other nations? Number one, they selected leaders. Now, let me, let me back up and say this. If you appoint bad leaders, and I think you can look at America and its history, okay, as far as electing bad leaders, or just look at, look at history in general, right? I mean, what happens? You just look at the book of Judges, right? What happens? A good leader is appointed, what happens? They, they, they fall, or they do what God wants them to do, and then what happens? Sin enters in, it's a cycle, right? And that's, and that's what happens with leadership, right? You, you look at the kings, what happens? A good king's appointed, they serve God during that time period because they, they don't serve Baal, they don't serve the idol gods, and then another king comes, it's a bad king, and what happens? All the, all the people fall, all the people fall into sin, go to worshiping idol gods, go to worshiping all these things. And so the first thing that Nehemiah does is he knows he needs help. He can't be the only leader, right? And I think there's a lesson here that we can learn as far as delegation. And I'm probably the worst person to do that, okay? It, many times on my mission trips, I'll take on the extra load and I'll, I'll do these things because, you know, what's the old saying? If you want it done right, do it yourself, right? And so sometimes that just comes down to the way it is, but... When it comes to the church, you know what's better? If you have good good leaders, delegate. Get because number one, you're going to get more people, more people involved. More people are going to be plugged in the work. They're going to feel meaningful. They're going to feel important. They're going to feel valued. Therefore, they're going to take in and do that work uh, more serious. So here they select leaders. Now let's look at these two leaders that they selected. Number one was Hanai. Okay, you see there in verse number two, who is Hanai? He is the brother of Nehemiah, okay? So, do you think they got him uh, a little bit of help there getting in that leadership position? Probably so, right? But, I think Nehemiah wasn't just going to play favorites. He wasn't just going to put a person in charge that wasn't qualified or he felt like was going to do not do a good job. I think Nehemiah knew, hey, my brother has the traits, he has the characteristics to help lead these people. And because of that, I'm going to appoint him, okay? So he was Nehemiah's brother. Although this relationship, this kinship played a part in the selection, I don't think that it is the only reason. He was a faithful man. He was, uh, Nehemiah was very confident in helping select him to that. Now look at the second one, Haniah. Haniah was the ruler of the palace. Now, what? how did Nehemiah start out his position? Okay, we, we talked about this several weeks ago when we started studying Nehemiah. He started out as what? A cupbearer. Then he went to 
contractor, and then he became a city leader. Okay, he worked his way up through the palace. He did not he did not stay in the lower ranks. He worked himself up, and I think that's the same way you see here with Hanai. He was the ruler of the palace, just like Nehemiah he had done work with the king of Persia. And he had proved himself faithful and loyal service. In addition to loyal service serving Nehemiah, he had loyally served God. Notice there again, the end of verse number 2. He said there, Hanani, the leader of the citadel. That just means the city, the ruler of the palace. Okay, For he was faithful, a faithful man and feared God more than many. Okay, So two things there. He was faithful and he had reverential respect and fear towards Almighty God. So what, so what else do you want as far as a good leader? Now, let's make some spiritual application uh, to this. How important is it that we have good leaders in the church? I mean, I think it, it can show just like a nation, right? I mentioned a nation a minute ago. A good, le- good leadership in a nation helps the nation flourish. It helps them grow. helps them be respectful towards God and do those things. Same way in the church. If you have a good, strong leadership that is spiritually grounded and rooted in the doctrine of Christ that is not going to uh, abide in doctrines of men and, and falter into denominational ways, what's going to happen? You're going to have a good leadership. But you know what happens so many times? Little things begin to trickle in. Okay, And that's going to lead to our second point. Okay, Number one, you've got to have good leadership. But the second thing that we see here in Nehemiah, well, it's really the third thing, Okay, so I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But look at this second thing, okay? Look at verse number 3. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while the guards stand guard, let them shut the bar of the doors and point guards for among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So the second thing they did, number one, they had to find good leaders, good leaders to help them lead the people. But number two, the, they, the lookouts... They station. Now, if you just kind of go back in your mind a few chapters, especially when they were building and they were afraid they were going to attack, what did they do? They had people watching out for them, people watching their back, and they were working with what? One hand while they had their weapon on another. So throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, one constant theme you're going to see happen over and over and over again is people were always on the lookout. Okay? Here, we get to chapter number 7 and verse number 3. What do they do? He says, be a watchman. Be, a, be on the lookout for these enemies that are going to come and do these things. Okay, um, This happened in chapter 6, verses 1-2, one, one, that, that they, they uh, set watchmen. Chapter 6, verse 3 and 9, also that they, they did this. Okay, But there were some guidelines. Okay, There were some guidelines for these watchmen uh, to do to help... Do this. Number one, okay, and this is this is where we're getting at. I'm gonna relate it back to leadership. The gates were to remain closed until the sun was hot. Look, look, go back at verse number three. Okay. Nehemiah said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while the guards stand, let the let them shut the bar of the doors, appoint the guards among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one of his watch stations and another in front of his own house. Now, look there at that phrase. Do not open until the sun is hot. What does that mean? Okay. Not, 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 just when, not just when the sun's 
barely coming up, right? Because, you know, at sunrise, you, what? You're going to have a little bit of light, but you're not going to be able to fully see, you know? But once the sun is hot, once it is at full rise, you're allowed to open the gates. Now, why in the world would they want that to happen? Why would they want the sun to be hot? Because when would the enemy come, most likely? What? You know, the Bible says what about a thief? In the, in the middle of the night, right? They're not going to come in the middle of the day and, st- and steal your stuff, right? They're going to come in the middle of the night when you're not home, when you're not expecting it, when you're in the comfort of your home, right? They're not going to break in in the middle of the day. They're going to come at night. And that's the same way with this. The enemy is going to attack at night. Why? Because people are sleeping. Because people are maybe even have their guard down. But he says, don't even open the doors until the sun is fully up, till we can see what's going on. That's going to help protect ourselves better by having that up. Okay, Nehemiah knew that the enemy would be most likely to attack under, to attack under the covers of darkness. Therefore, he did not want it until that happened. Okay, the doors were to remain shut at all times until that time. Okay, even when the gates were open, Nehemiah wanted a second line of defense. Closed doors would be a second line of defense. Clear, clearly, Nehemiah did not believe in an open door policy. Remember that. Nehemiah did not believe in an open door policy and the entrances were to be guarded. Okay, think of, think of it like this. Um, I know uh, there's a neighborhood in Valdosta that um, some very close friends of mine live. And in order to get to their house, you know what they had? They had a watchman. They had, they had the, it was higher in the neighborhood. Okay, it was at the golf course. All right. So what did they have? They had a gate. And what did you have to do in order to get in the gate? You had to say, hey, hey I'm here to see so-and-so. And they would buzz their house and they would say, hey, so yeah, let them on in. Or they would call up to the, to the guard shack and you know what they would say, hey, so-and-so's back on their way to come see me, please let them in. They'd let you in, right? And why is that? So people aren't coming in that don't need to be in there. Same way with this. The guard, they had several lines of defenses that's going to help them in order to, to be on guard, to be able to withstand these attacks that were going to ha- happen. Uh, to these people, okay? So let, let's make some comparisons here to these things. Number, There were three policies that these watchmen had to do. Number one, the gates were to remain closed until the sun was up, okay, until the sun was hot, as the text says. They were to remain, keep the sh- doors shut at all times, and the entrances were to be guarded, okay? So three things there that these leaders did. Let's Let's make some spiritual application to these things. Number one, we must make sure that we open the gates only in the light of God's Word. Remember I talked about good good leadership does what? They're only going to make sure sound doctrine is taught. Same way here, right? we got to make sure that we open our gates, that we are in fellowship with those that what? Teach the truth, right? Hold your marker here. And go. With, I'm going to show you a verse. Go to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Now I, got, I about guarantee you everybody in this room can quote Romans 16, 16, right? Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you or greet you. But do you ever read verse 17? Okay, look, look at this. Romans 16 and verse number 17. Okay, you see verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you or salute you. 17. Now I urge you, brethren... 
Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. You know, you know one way that we can make sure that we keep our guard shut, that, that we keep our door closed, is not allowing doctrines of men, doctrines of the, of the world, okay, those things that, the, that men have made up through uh, their, own, their own eyes into the church, okay? Like I said, so many times that's where leadership falters. They take a step in the wrong direction. Maybe they open up uh, their pulpit. They hire a preacher that is not sound in the faith. And you know what happens? The congregation follows. Okay? And so here in Romans 16, verse 17, we need to note those. We need to, um, those that cause divisions and, and teach a doctrine that is not true according to the Bible. We only need to make sure that we walk in the light as Jesus is in light. You look at John chapter 3 and verse 19, and the Bible says, uh, and this is the condemnation that the light is, co- is come into the world, and that men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone who that doeth evil hateth the light, that neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought by God. Okay, so... We need to make sure that we open our gates only to those who teach and expose the truth of God's Word. Number two goes right along with that. We must not have an open-door policy. What's an open-door policy? Anything goes, right? Anything goes. If we have an open-door policy, anything goes. But we need to make sure that we filter and be on watch for those things. We need to make sure that those who are allowed to place membership and teach those teach are in the right relationship with God. We cannot cannot fellowship those who are enemies of God without failing uh, to their condemnation and forfeiting their companionship. Second John chapter nine. Uh, wow. Second John nine through eleven because there's only one chapter in that. And we must make sure that we leave no guard unguarded. Okay. We must make sure that we leave our our gates guarded. We got to keep our guard up. You know what happens many times? They have their guard up, then they lower it a little bit. You know what that's called? It's called compromise. And then they lower it a little bit more. They lower their guard. And you know what happens eventually? All those things that we talked about infiltrate in the church, and a nation and a church falls because they lowered their guard. Keep your guard up, keep your guard high, because that's what we need to do. If we do not keep... Keep the guard closed. The enemy will walk right in. God has given us the gate of fellowship. Let them, let's keep them closed. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 11. Okay? So go back, go back to Nehemiah chapter 7. Um, looking here, we looked at verses 1 through, um, about verse 3. Now let's look at verse 4. It says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. So what happened? Verse 5, Then my God put in my heart together the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by the genealogy I have found in a registry of the genealogy of those who had come up with the first return and found written in it. Okay. Now you, you read from verse number 6 all the way through the, basically the end of the chapter. This is where they search for the lineage. Okay, The lineage that would happen. And these are the people that came out from among them. In that first return, as you can see there in verse number 5. And there's a lot of people listed, but I'm not going to go through that long list. Okay, So so chapter 6, 
we see that that they uh, were attacked or tried to be attacked through them, that they um, had to examine themselves, examine their people. In verse number 7, they had to separate. They had to keep their guards closed so that they can um, be ready for those attacks. Any questions on chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 6 or chapter 7? Yes. Yeah, what what is the Bible? Yeah. What that, that's right. That's right. And uh, I agree with those statements. Because what, what does it say about um, those in uh, Thessalonica were more noble than those in Berea? Why? Because they searched the scriptures, right? They made sure that what the preacher was preaching was what? Factual. It was accurate. It wasn't teaching opinion or doctors of men, but it was backed up by the Holy Scriptures. And the other verse that, that comes to mind is, I think that one's Acts 17 and 11. The other one is First uh, Peter 3 and verse 15. Be ready always to give a defense for the reason and the hope that is within you, right? And the only reason that we can give a defense, right? We're, we're kind of talking about being on the defense here, right? We're not, we're not talking about attacking the enemy. We're talking about being on guard and, and being ready for when the enemy attacks us, right? That idea of defense is, hey, be ready to, to be ready to Use the sword of God, Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12, two-edged sword, right? To be on guard for those when they come on attack. So the only way we can do that is, number one, know the truth, but number two, be able to teach the truth as well to those who might uh, not be teaching it correctly. And a lot of times it's not the minister that comes, it's the elders that's appointed and regularly leads the way. I've seen it both ways in, in, in my short time lived here. I know you've probably seen it uh, longer than I have, obviously, but I've seen it both ways. I've seen I've seen a preacher come in and help the church that maybe was going liberal and bring it back to, to where it needed to be. But then as soon as he left, you know what happens? They go right back to the left. Okay. Um, and I've seen seen preachers come in and infiltrate the elders and then he becomes an elder and that's an instance in Alabama that I've recently heard about. Hired a preacher, he became an elder, and now they're off on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Sad situation. Ten years ago, he taught the truth on it. But he has recently studied it and gone in a different direction. So it, I think it can be both ways, but yeah, if if you appoint a man that's, um, maybe even you appoint a man that's not qualified to be an elder, that's really, really hurtful for the church as well. That's why First um, Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one, gives us those qualifications of men that need to be elders. They're 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 there, and I think they got to be good Bible students first off, and be sound in the doctrine. Very good point. Any other comments or questions? I'm not 100% sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah they... Uh, Big families. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. You know, like uh, like you, you said there, you can see verse, verse 8, you know, the sons of this 2,172. So, yeah, I'll look at that and answer you next week. You asked a question last week, and I got you an answer. I'll get you another one. Yes, sir. 
So they were, they were taking it to their own nations, their own cities, and teaching it and grounding it there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very good point. Any other ones? All right. Let's get them. Let's go ahead and dive in my chapter. We probably my favorite chapter. We probably won't get very long far with this. Um, but chapter eight is about education. Now I'm an I'm an educator, meaning I, I teach for a living, and I see the downfall of education in America. Right. Um, teaching, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I'm teaching things that, number one, my kid, I teach special ed, that my students really struggle to grasp because it's at a level that is very high for them. Okay, and right now I'm, I'm, I'm teaching them skills that they need in the real world. I'm teaching them budgeting, teaching them uh, credit. Or I, I recently taught them how to make sure they're getting paid right for overtime. Why? Because most likely these kids are going to go work a factory job and if they have an evil, corrupt boss, they're going to cheat them on their pay, right? So I taught them how to make sure they're getting paid right, okay? Um, I mean, you, you, you see things that are infiltrating in education such as the LBGTQ plus doctrine, okay? And that, those things, the critical race theory. You know, the, all those things are infiltrating in education, right? I don't want to talk about that education, I want to talk about biblical education. What do you think is one of the things that is hurting the church the most right now? Yeah, they don't know their Bible, right? They don't, uh, they don't, you know, I I remember, um, I think it was Brad Harrop, uh, works with Focus Press, did a series of lessons on teens and keeping our teens faithful. And his number one point was you got to have a knowledge of the Word of God. You think about Hosea chapter 4 and verse number 6, what does that say? Well, my people were destroyed. Why? Lack of knowledge, right? And you're going to see that lack of knowledge here when you get to chapter 8. Okay? That, that, that's really the downfall of chapter number 8 is these people did not have the knowledge they needed to and they were not keeping the feasts they were supposed to be keeping. They were not keeping the, the festivals, the booze that they were supposed to be keeping. And, and that's one big thing that, that's a big problem. Here in chapter number 8. So when you think of chapter 8, think of education. So let's look at verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded them. Okay? So Ezra, of course, is Ezra the scribe. Same one in uh, the book of Ezra. Okay, he is a scribe. Remember what a scribe is? He was one that copied the Word of God. Therefore, what did Ezra know? He knew the Word of God. He, he was very educated in the Word of God. He knew it. Okay? Now, what did he say in front of the water grate and told Ezra the scribe to what? Bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. If I, if I was sitting there and I said, bring me the book, okay, just that phrase, what would you think? It's the Bible, right? What does what does Bible mean? The book, okay, is obviously a collection of books, sixty six books in one, okay. But Bible literally means book. It's the holy book. It is the the uh, separated book, the special book that we have today, okay. So the first thing we're going to look at is the required text, okay. You know, in college classes, I've, I've taken several. There's always a required textbook. 
And those things are expensive, number one. Okay? But there was always a required text. You know what I hated? This, this drove me nuts. The, the, the professor would get up in front of the class and they'd go over the syllabus and you're going through the syllabus with them. You know, you're going to have this assignment due here. This is your big project that you're going to have to do. It's due this date. You're going to have four tests. They're broken up into 15 points each. Your other points are from that project. You know, I'm going to give five extra points for attendance, whatever they're going to say. And then they get to the textbooks, okay? And, it, and there's a section. It's in bold and underlined. It says required textbooks. They said, we're going to use that textbook. You need it. In order to pass this class, you're going to, do, you're going to have to do the assigned readings. You're going to have to do this. You know what happens? I never even crack open that textbook, and they never even make mention of that textbook, and I do okay in the class. And most of the time, the professor wrote the book, so all they wanted was a profit off of their books. Okay? But what drove me nuts was they said it was a required text, and I never even used the text. Okay? But this book that we're looking at here in Nehemiah chapter 1 is a required text. It's one that everybody needs. Okay? And we're going to talk about why everybody needs it here in a second. The text is, of course, uh, the Word of God. Okay? So let's look why we need the Word of God. Okay? The, this book, the Word of God, can, number one, order our steps. Okay? Psalms 119 verse 105, your, uh, your word is a light unto my feet and a light unto my path. What's the only way that, that, that we're going to educate ourselves to know the path of God? By studying and living and knowing the word of God. Number two, the word of God makes us alive. It sets us free. John 8 verse number two, 32, you shall know the truth and what? The truth shall make you free. Okay? What's well, the only thing that's going to make us free is by being educating ourselves in the Word of God. It's going to prepare us for judgment. The words which I have spoken will judge you in the last days. Okay, John 12 and verse number 48. It's going to give us an inheritance. Acts 20 and verse number 32. It is the book that's going to thoroughly furnish us into every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. It is the Word of God that is able to save our souls. James 1. In verse number twenty-one. So when we look at this, look at this, okay, and we and we look at verse one. What was the thing that we noticed that they had to have a required text? Why? Because this book is what's going to guide the people to do that. Now, when we look at the Bible and we look at um, textbooks, number one, it is easy to read. You might be thinking, no, the Bible's hard to understand. Okay. Now there are some sections of the Bible that is hard to understand. The Book of Revelation is a hard book to understand. Because you got to understand the book of Daniel, you got to understand Old Testament literature, you got to understand those things, right? We, we understand that there are some sections that are hard to read. But overall, is the Bible hard to read? No. It's easy to read, right? Why would Jesus say in John 8, verse 32, you shall what? Know the truth. If, if you can know something, what does that mean? You can understand it, right? So you can understand it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, and verse number 4, where you read, you may what? Understand the mystery. Of my knowledge, a mystery is something maybe hard to grasp, right? But if you can read the Bible, you can you can grasp it. I remember um, James Watkins. Many of you probably have heard James Watkins preach, and I, I remember him saying that the Bible was written on about a fifth grade level, fifth or sixth grade level, and and that's how you can read and understand the Bible. So it's easy to understand. It's filled with examples. Okay, the Bible is filled with examples. Um, we're, we're reading about an example, right? We're reading about Nehemiah's leadership, what we can learn from that leadership. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, those things were written before time were written for our learning. What does that mean? It's written for our examples that we can follow after, and it's, it is 
uh, complete with reviews, meaning we can learn from their mistakes and learn from their uh, mess-ups so we can review ourselves and make sure that we are following the Word of God correctly. Okay, so when we look at this, we have to have the required text. Okay, but number two, we have to have a respected teacher. Okay, required text, but then a respected teacher. Look at verse number uh, two of this. It says, "So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, all that could hear with understanding, on the first and of the seventh month. Then he read from it the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women." And all those could understand, the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Why is Ezra here teaching? Because he is a respected teacher. Right? What, what was his occupation? He was a scribe, right? It was mentioned there in verse number 1. But Ezra prepared himself, right? If you remember back in Ezra chapter 7 and verse number 10, Ezra prepared his art to teach the law and the statutes and judgments before the people. Okay, Ezra 7 and verse number 10. Therefore, he prepared himself, he studied his lesson, he set a right example for those to follow after. You're, you're kind of going to see that here. Also in Ezra chapter 8, he followed the text, he explained his lesson, he was, he was thorough in what he taught. So he was, a recept, he was a respected teacher. Okay, So, you got to have the text, and you got to have a good teacher. Now, what... Let's compare that for just a second to a New Testament example. What was it that the Ethiopian eunuch said as he was traveling? He said what? How can I unless someone guide me, right? And what were they reading from? Isaiah, the the law, right? Isaiah chapter um, 53. So do we see those same two things in in Acts chapter 8 as we do here in Nehemiah chapter 8? Absolutely, right? We see a required text. The eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53, the Old Testament law. And he had a a respected teacher. And that was Philip the Evangelist. He was Philip the preacher. And you know what he did? He explained it to him in a throwaway. Yes, sir. When I was at the lectureship in Valdosta, um, one of the college professors at Freed Hardman, one that I respect, and he's a very good preacher, um, love love him a lot. He's, and he, he was teaching teenagers. And he said this three times in his lesson at least. And he made the teens repeat it every time he said it. For every text, there is a what? Context. You know what he was pointing out? Hey, people have a lot of knowledge of the Bible. They know what the Bible says. But do they look at it in its proper context to understand the text fully? And I think that's where a lot of people get off is they know a Bible verse, but they don't look at it in its full full understanding. I'll give you this one quick example, and then we'll we'll break until worship. Uh, last Sunday, I studied with a Seventh Day Adventist that lives in Australia. We met. We've been uh, been doing a Bible study through Zoom, and he went to Hebrews chapter three. Okay, to talk about we need to keep the Sabbath day. I went through book number one. He answered every question right. 
And so I got to the conclusion, just to make sure you understand that, I understood it, talking about our word. I said, we, do we still keep the Ten Commandments? He said, yes. And I said, well, we just read that the Old Testament was done away with. It was nailed to the cross. He said, well, there's a dead. He went in this big, long spiel. And we talked about the Sabbath day, obviously. So he goes to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there reading it, and I'm like, How's this guy not get when it says enter into that rest? It's talking about heaven. But he was, he was just looking at one little bit verse. He wasn't looking at it in its whole context. He had knowledge about the Bible, but he didn't have proper understanding. That's a very good point, Ron, about knowledge versus understanding. We've got to look at it in its proper context and fully dive into it. Any other questions or comments before we close? I think that's why we need to continue to study. That's exactly right. You can read a text one time and get something from it. Go back a year later and what? Get five more things from it, right? Um, and so that's why we need to continue to study. We're going to gain more knowledge as we go. Absolutely. Any other comments? All right, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed until worship. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for this day. Grateful that we're able to worship you today on this Lord's Day. We pray that everything will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We're thankful for the study of uh, Nehemiah. We're thankful that we have great leaders at this congregation that keep their guard up, that will make sure that we keep and teach the truth here at White Oak. We pray that you be with us and keep us safe. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.